Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It might be 2023. But we need to have another chat about consent and sex. I know it feels like we should have had this one down, but if the stories and statistics about sexual assault and rape are anything to go by, society is failing on this one. Today's Changemaker Chat is with Chanel Contos. Chanel is well known in Australia for her survey amongst high school kids in 2021 that uncovered the sexual assault crisis amongst teenagers. She's just written a book called Consent Laid Bare, and she's here to tell us all about it. Consent Laid Bare is a feminist clarion call for our times. Chanel pulls no punches. We live with rape culture, and she's ambitious in saying that we need to end it. Equally, though, Chanel is practical, and her work has been defined by chipping away at this behemoth, seeking to cobble out a new society like a master craftswoman. We talk about the long story that she took on her role into this role, and we break down what rape culture is and how we might overcome it. She talks about the politics of what is personal and how personal testimony is political. Parents, listen to this for yourselves and your kids. Kids, listen to this as though your lives depended on it. And for those of you who have ever wanted to do something big but not known where to start, Come and be inspired. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. We are now broadcast on Acast as part of the Iconoclast Network, so you can find us there as well as on all the usual podcast apps. You can find out more about Changemakers on our website, where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Chanel, welcome to Changemakers. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Such an honor. It is my pleasure to have this conversation with you and with our audience and with the world, especially in Australia, where this conversation is prescient and important around questions of consent. But let's start by, you know, we're going to be able to have a whole, it's like a whole of um, a Chanel experience on the podcast today, both around your <laughs> And I was wondering if you could share with our audience, let's start with that. What kind of change maker are you? I would describe myself as quite a practical change maker in terms of how there's you know, the problem of pervasive sexual assault is a, is a very large societal problem. And I approach the change I try to make with that with quite specific targeted solutions. I think that 
that can be really beneficial as it means that you can come out with very tangible results for the type of change you're trying to make. But it's quite different to change makers who I guess are talking about, you know, big theories and big structures and kind of try to start revolutions of cultural movements and understandings and all those sort of things. But I guess I do also try to do that as well um, in the yeah, same Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think you should sell yourself <laughs> short here. You're trying to transform rape culture. I think that feels like a fairly big vision. <laughs> no, it is. It is. It is. And I guess I do, um, I definitely can speak to these topics quite radically and I love speaking to them quite radically about like, you know, my passionate views on them. But then if I'm, if I'm in a room with someone who does have elected power to make change in our country, I will be quite practical about what steps can be taken and what the reality is. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I, I mean, to be honest, I think that sounds like a pretty interesting and effective theory of change. I think lots of, you know, the stories that are written up about the the big change makers of history, I think that most of them would say that they were their change was made one step at a time, you know. Yeah. One small no, step you have at a time. Often it's, I think Yeah. I think the other thing is is all my change making draws on the power of thousands because that petition, that original petition that I'm sure we'll talk about later, gained fifty thousand signatures almost 7,000 people, mainly young women, wrote their testimonies of experiences of sexual assault on the website. And it meant that I had this just massive power behind me in my change making that also spoke to a grassroots movement and one that felt very relatable to so many so many people, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. So it's collective and practical yes. uh, sort of in methodology. So, I mean, it, it leads us to the obvious question as to how you came to be that kind of change maker, how, mm-hmm. how that form of change, both the topic and the, and the approach um, came to you. So I want to go, you know, you're not that old, so you don't have to, it's not hard for you to go back in time. <laughs> um, but, you know, to go back and have a, th- I, I would love you to have a think about um, any stories or experiences that helped catalyze or create that energy for change that you bring. Yeah. So it's interesting because I guess often, I mean, I was actually on a panel the other day and someone asked quite a similar question asking like why we feel motivated to do this sort of work and like where that inherently came from. Because I feel I've always been someone who, I guess, in my own way has fought for social justice, whether it's been like, you know, on the charity committee at school or like volunteering for organizations, like whatever it is, you know, what's that thing we used to do when you knock on people's doors and ask for money on some day in like your school uniform, whatever it was. And the other people on the panel all spoke about the kind of like other influential feminists or change makers in their life, whether it be like their grandmother or their parents or their whatever. And I thought about it and was like, I actually think I stepped into that role because I didn't see that happen anywhere else. I didn't particularly have anyone in my life who was super close to me who was super politically activated or interested or um, kind of did anything too much out of the norm. And it was much more my friends that defined my experience of like feminism. And I remember, I guess it was actually every time I learned about something that seemed like an injustice, it kind of like fueled this type of rage in me that made me want to do something. So I remember two key moments. One, I remember Julie Gillard's misogyny speech. I remember that being on the TV when I came home from school and just kind of like, you know, whatever background 
background music, continue having dinner, continue doing my homework, whatever. But then the next day at school, in school assembly, the head girls spoke to us about this thing called misogyny that I had never heard of before. And having this peer that, you know, everyone idolizes, the girl a few years older than you, mm-hmm. having this peer talk about this sort of issue and understanding what misogyny meant for me and my friends and other women around the world. I think, you know, things like that started to really like trigger I me. And the other one was, I remember when I found out what female genital mutilation was for the first time when I was like quite young and I just like couldn't understand how these sort of injustices happen to people. I didn't even know, I didn't understand the concept of it being a, a sex-based issue at the time, but it was, it just feels like so unfair. And I think that is where, I think that is why I do a lot of what I do and where this change making comes from because it just seems unfair and seems obvious how to stop yeah. it from being unfair. And so, uh, I mean, also a little bit in the book, uh, you know, like if you, uh, you've talked about how, you know, you mentioned just then about how your your family weren't involved in change making, but it was your friends that activated an understanding that made you see that there were different ways of um, working. Like how did um, growing up in a sort of more cons- conservative space and then having an awakening around that there could be difference, um, different kinds of spaces. How did that help? Like often we, I mean, I think that those things are powerful, right? Seeing injustice around the world. But I, I think also there's often an intimate understanding, a personal connection to questions of change. How, how did those more, uh, those closer experiences also shape you? Yeah. So for context, um, I am second generation Australian my parents my parents parents were all born in Greece and um you know they came over after the war and I from speaking to lots of other Greek Australians of my generation and then also knowing a few people who are in Greece now it feels as though there's something about the Greeks who migrated overseas at that time where you know they you know they were being forced to they were fleeing whatever looking for a better life, that they very much like held on to a lot of traditions and practices, almost more so than modern Greeks living in Greece now. So I think a lot of these more like old school, patriarchal, you know, family structures, gendered expectations, stuff like that can almost be enforced even more in when these families from like a few generations ago, I guess, had been displaced. And I think what I found interesting is I guess if we think of the patriarchy as a spectrum of like, you know, it's all around us at all times, but how you're experiencing it can kind of fall anywhere on the spectrum, depending on your immediate context, your working life, your opportunities, your capabilities, all these sort of things. Because I had that in my home life. And then where I went to school was around not that many kind of conservative, like my friends didn't really have that many conservative parents in general. Most of them, they were probably much more like chill, much more progressive. Like, I don't know, anyone listening who's like second gen, like <laughs> European, I think it probably gets the, gets the vibe of what I'm talking about. It felt as though my family life sat slightly higher on the patriarchal stuff than a lot of my friends. And so I think all of these concepts around rape culture that were a bit more hidden in day-to-day life you know in school and for my friends and stuff like that seemed much more overt to me and I think that really changed how I perceived a lot of how I perceived a lot of these things and 
thinking about the source of them and them being more notable to me when I was in environments where those sort of narratives weren't as prevalent. Yeah, it's almost like there was something that was taken for granted, you know, when you grew up in your family. And then when it was awoke, when, when, when there was, when you realized that actually there was something different, it was a big awakening to, 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 to a culture. Maybe you could see it more clearly than others could see it because of your experience. I think like when I learned about, you know, like what rape culture sounds like or rape culture looks like, or, um, you know, problematic sayings or expectations of things around purity culture, like all these sort of things, it felt much more relevant to my upbringing and also I don't want to speak on behalf of them, but the upbringing of a lot of my other like Greek Australian friends and versus, I guess, yeah, I guess my, <laughs> it's funny. I obviously know I'm, I'm white, but I always make jokes that there's a difference between Greek white and Australian white <laughs> and that kind of. Oh, I'm sure yeah. there is. Yeah. <laughs> like what you're just describing is exactly. um, a, a helpful, a helpful illumination for those, for, about that difference. Yeah. And so why don't you tell us a bit of this? I mean, you, you explain this in, in, in the book that you've written and it's a spectacularly well-written book, listeners, you should go out and get a copy, but you talk about learning about the question of consent. Um, as a sort of triggering point at school. Do you want to share a little bit of that story? Yeah, so basically, and I guess this also speaks again to what I was just saying about there's been times where someone's been, something's been taught to me and it's triggered this sort of like anger feeling of injustice and like want to change. But basically when I was in year 10, so I was 15, but all my peers were 16, the school got an external speaker to speak to us about sexual assault and then therefore by default consent education it was the first time consent had ever been spoken to me or any of my peers, as far as I know, in this way, in terms of what it means in a sexual context and in such an explicit way. And it was absolutely game-changing for us in terms of how we perceived ourselves, how we perceived our relationships with men, how we perceived sex, how we perceived our past experiences. And, you know, this talk was great, but it came too late because it made it meant that what that talk did was give a lot of us a delayed realization that we had experienced sexual assault now that we had the language and it was defined to us of what it is um and yeah I mean me and me and my two best friends went to a a teacher in the school you know the next day and said that was great but we needed to hear it earlier trying to I guess advocate for change for the younger girls at the school and we were told that you know it would never get past the parents we were too mature for our year so you know it wouldn't sit well with other girls in the year it would make them feel uncomfortable all these sort of things so I guess that was the beginning of my change making journey for consent education it's such a horrible idea the idea that that consent education would make people uncomfortable you know what makes people uncomfortable sexual assault that I makes know. people feel really uncomfortable. Far yeah, out. That's much more uncomfortable. Um, yeah. <laughs> people are like, it's a hard conversation to have. I'm like, well, guess what the consequences of not having it are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why don't you tell us this? Story? We, you mentioned the petition and we're going to go into sort of what underpins the, the sort of theory of change and the approach that you've taken in, in trying to look at, I guess, the consequences and outcomes of that petition. But why don't you share... Where, so you had this experience of learning about consent and then years later you uh, became quite well known for 
for this petition, for this exploration of, of a space, creating a space for people to share their own, share their stories about sexual assault um, in school. Can you tell us that story for people who don't know? So just to set the scene as well, so I guess me and my friends went and asked our school principal for consent education for the younger girls in 2013. And then in 2020, I was at a sleepover with three friends who None of them went to my school. We actually all went to different schools around Sydney, but all knew each other growing up and, you know, socialising in the same groups, went to the same parties, whatever, got in closer at university. And, yeah, four girls sleepover, just started chatting, essentially started, like, gossiping about boys who had done horrible things to people and realised that the stories were endless. They just really didn't stop and... In that conversation, I found out that the same boy who sexually assaulted me when I was 13 had sexually assaulted another friend of mine a year later. And I felt absolutely furious because I felt not just mad at him, but mad at the fact that I didn't even know enough about what was going on that I couldn't have even had the opportunity to try to stop him from doing it from her to her by, you know, reporting or anything like that. Anyway, and that's when I collected my first few testimonies, but I collected them privately. I texted friends who I knew had been sexually assaulted, asked if they would send their, send their stories in, you know, posted in group chats to my group, big groups of girlfriends saying, hey, like, blah, 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 do you want to be a part of this? Everyone was keen, but I, I basically got sidetracked, ended up moving to London and didn't do anything about it. Until I was in London again, I had another moment of extreme kind of like anger, fury, passion that drove me to post on Instagram saying, have you or has anyone close to you ever been sexually assaulted by someone who went to an all-boys school in Sydney? And the responses started coming in so quickly from way beyond just Sydney, way beyond perpetrators who just went to all-boys schools. So then I launched a national petition on the website teachersconsent.com calling for holistic, early and mandated consent education in the Australian curriculum. Long story short, a year later, that was mandated. I presented a meeting with eight ministers of education from around the country, or nine, God, I can't remember, eight or nine. And they unanimously decided that consent education would be mandated in the Australian curriculum. And yeah, that was kind of the, the big Boom, that was it. Well done. <laughs> Not so easy. Before we get into some of the, so that's the, I mean, that's the thing that is practical and revolutionary in in the work Mm. that you've done. I'm wondering, you know, you chose to to explore people's testimony. What, you know, ask people for testimony. Did you have a a reason? Was was there a a reason behind that? Yeah, there was a few reasons behind that. Um, I guess the biggest reason behind it was, the day after that first sleepover when I was trying to decide what to do about this, I was like, oh, maybe I should, you know, go and ask some meetings with school principals. You know, they'd probably take it with me. I'm an old girl. I went to these schools. I live in the area, whatever. And then I was like, no, they don't, they can't just hear from me. They need to hear what I heard last night. And they need to hear that these boys went to their schools and that this isn't just a problem that exists in Australia, in the world, wherever this is happening right in front like right in front of them because of their education because of their socialization you know young people spend like probably more time at school than they spend at home in terms of like when they're consciously learning and like you know changing their attitudes around things 
Well, um, as they're becoming s- sexual adults, right? The, the, yeah. the, the influences are highly at school, their peers, yeah. as much as in their life. Exactly. Peers, teachers, um, what they're learning in the curriculum, what's normal for them to say, do, what behavior gets corrected, all these different things. So yeah, I think I think school principals should feel very personally responsible for for those sort of testimonies. But yeah, the testimonies named the school of the perpetrator and of the victim and the school year, but no one individually. And that was intentional because I never wanted to single out anyone specifically because I have no interest in working towards you know, in terms of like, you know, making this seem like it's an anomaly as if this one person did this one thing to this other person. Yeah. The whole idea is the fact that it happened to so many of us, you know, arguably all of us on some level on the spectrum of spectrum of sexual violence. That's right. It's not an individualized problem. No, it's not. And what was really interesting actually is like when the testimonies came out, the girls' schools were the first to respond in terms of I think being worried, being like, oh, no, everyone's going to think that if you go to this school, you're going to get sexually assaulted because all these girls have posted this testimony of it on the website. And there needed to be like a whole other conversation around rape culture and victim blaming and why there was such a focus on thinking that a school was a bad school because so many girls there had been sexually assaulted versus a school being a bad school because, or not, you know, not a bad school, but a school being a school that needs improvement because so many of its students are sexually assaulting someone. It was very interesting, like, where that um, where that was kind of understood. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost like the more the problem is personalised, the more people feel shame and it's individualised. But actually, I mean, we're going to get into it. What you're talking about is a, is a, is a culture of rape, a culture mm-hmm. of sexual assault. And that's not fixed by pointing the finger at one person or even one school. It's... Uh, there's something systemic or broad-based that needs to be addressed, i.e., you know, fundamentally changing the curriculum as you've done and and other forms of change that we're going to talk about later too that address that kind that kind of issue. Let's move into the how about how we about how you achieve this kind of change and the sort of theory of change of um, not only the success that you've already had, but you know, fixing rape culture sounds like a useful thing to do. Let's talk about how you might do that. <laughs> I'm interested for you for the audience, I'd love you to define what is consent because I actually think that depending on how old you are, um, what you think of as consent is is probably different. What do you think of consent, Chanel? <laughs> oh, that's not a fair question, Amanda, because you know in the book that it says this book is basically about why consent is so hard to define. But I, I will I will define it in as nuanced way as possible. Legally, consent is freely giving permission to do something. But that definition doesn't satisfy me because this concept of freely I don't understand how we can say that word with meaning under the patriarchy when we're referring to heterosexual sexual encounters. And I also talk about in the book how the only satisfied definition of consent I've ever seen is when I found out that the etymology of the word consent comes from the Latin of con meaning together or joining together, like conjunction, and then sentio meaning I feel, I perceive, I'm present. And that is more how I define consent. I think that 
the reason consent can be so confusing is because we're constantly trying to define it within a legal framework where the law doesn't work for defining consent or sexual assault. It's a blunt tool. In Australia, we have like a 1.5% conviction rate or something, which essentially means we've decriminalised rape as an act in Australia. And consent is much easier to understand if we are looking at it in the lens of human connection, human empathy, real-time information being exchanged between two people depending on body language, mood, language, all these sort of things. So I guess, yeah, to me, consent is respecting the wants and wishes and reading those genuinely from another person. It's so powerful. I love the way in which you've sort of detached it from a legal framework, which is so so bureaucratic in a sense, and and talked about it as the relationship in which it is. That's very power. I think that's very a very powerful way of looking at it, um, because the, I think the legal system is like lowest common denominator when it comes to a lot of these mm. concepts, and it's helpful, kinda. But you're right; very few rapists go to jail. They don't even go into the court system, and so we we really do need to have a look at how we can enact an understanding of consent that doesn't worry about the penal carceral system, but worries about how we can uh, stop rape, mm. <laughs> stop rape before, being far more preventative. I think also it's interesting. So what we are seeing in Australia at the moment is kind of state by state, there's been this rollout of affirmative consent legislation, which basically means that the accused needs to prove that they actively seek consent rather than the victim proving that they didn't give consent, which is interesting because on a social level, it's incredible because it completely flips this switch away from no means no to only yes means yes, which mm. subconsciously does a lot to what we teach about, you know, the default access to female bodies. However, I've spoken to, you know, some pretty like, <laughs> I don't know, specialist barristers about this because those are tend to be the ones who are most opposed, like the, you know, most relevant stakeholders opposed to this sort of legislation often. And there are like, I mean, I don't, I don't have a law degree. And even if I did, I don't think I would understand to like an inch of what these kind of like specialist barristers understand in this way. There are like technical reasons why legally it doesn't make sense or it's not the best policy or there's still loopholes and it's still doing all of these things. And the bottom line is that is not what an average Australian understands. What an average Australian understands about consent is much more important than having two barristers in a room arguing over the technicalities of like where a comma is and what word says what about whether someone had been sexually assaulted. Yeah. So what you're saying is actually like to the extent that the law is powerful, right, that it's shifted from no to yes, basically. It's powerful because it communicates a message to everyone, not just to the courtroom. Sorry, lawyers. (laughs) <laughs> not, not actually as important as sorry lawyers no it's just so I think that um yeah, no no I was I was, I was actually just going to move us to to the to the the, the the question about rape culture right you name it really explicitly in the book I, what I love about one of the things I love about the book is that it's just it's like a recall to to just pulling no punches feminism right like it's just a really straight up feminist um text you sort of call us a spade a shovel. And you talk, talk a lot about rape culture and also uh, in some ways seek to problematize or at least break open our understanding of rape 
to recognise that it's not, we need to understand sexual assault as not just some, some sort of one-off unusual violent act, which is often how it's portrayed in the press, but actually seeing a whole, the, the wide range of sexual assault that it's perpetrated, that plenty of perpetrators probably don't recognise themselves as rapists because of the portrayal of rape. Can you talk us about, about that and, and how important it is to sort of see the breadth of this problem rather than seeing rape as this is a narrow, um, extremely isolated um, uh, crime. So I think that the stereotypical understanding of what rape is and what rape looks like tends to be, as you said, a form of more like violent, random attack, kind of as if you're in like wrong place, wrong time, as if there's something you could have done to prevent it, not work at home, not walk home alone, you know, avoid dark lit streets, all those sort of things. Oh, sorry, avoid unlit streets, all those sort of things. And whilst as women, it is still logical to <laughs> try to avoid all those situations, unfortunately, we shouldn't have to. But whilst that is the current state of the world, I still, you know, always walk the well-trodden route home, you know, carry my keys in my hand, all the things we've all done before. It is actually slightly irrational to think that way because we are much more likely to be sexually assaulted by someone we know and arguably trust than a stranger. And the book goes into detail about different types of rapists. So I remember when I found that in my research when I was doing my dissertation, that was kind of like a game-changing moment for me of understanding how we can prevent this because in order to prevent a problem, in order to make change about it, we need to adequately understand the root of the problem. And this rapist typology essentially broke up rapists into four different categories. I won't spend too much time going into the detail of the first three, but they are basically perpetrated out of kind of like intergenerational trauma, malice, feelings of inadequacy, kind of in general, these people are either sociopaths or like quite socially awkward and like probably struggled to fully mold into society in a meaningful way. Whereas the fourth type of rapist, which made up the vast majority of convicted rapists, which is interesting because this is also the type of rapist that would be least likely to be convicted in a criminal setting, is a type of rapist that rapes out of opportunity, essentially out of sexual entitlement rather than any sort of planning or malice. I call this type of rapist an entitled opportunist because I think entitlement is completely essential to understanding why this type of perpetrator rapes and the whole point about entitled opportunists is that they are completely normal people. Entitled opportunists are much more likely to use sexual coercion rather than physical force to sexually assault someone. If they do use physical force it will often be quite minimal. I'm also just going to define sexual coercion quickly because that was another one of those moments where you know something got taught to me and I was like oh my god life-changing. <laughs> sexual coercion means forcing someone into a sexual act in a non-physical way. So whether that's blackmail, pressure, guilt, you know, I often see it with young people and the non-consensual um, sharing of naked images like image-based abuse. You know, maybe they have consensually shared one image and they say, you know, if you don't do this with me, I'll share it. Or if you, you know, if you don't send me another one, I'll do this, I'll send it to your parents, whatever, that sort of thing. So all of these are thing, forms of sexual coercion, you know, begging, pleading, not taking no for an answer. And I think the thing with entitled opportunists as well that is interesting to understand is they have usually been socialised to, to be told that their sexual satisfaction is paramount to a sexual situation. We can't forget the mass amounts of pornography that young people these days are consuming. 
And we can't forget that we seldom have any conversations about female sexuality or female pleasure, and especially in teen years, what that's supposed to look like in these situations. So we come to this like horrible situation where I'm speaking very generally here, like very anecdotally, if I just kind of had to like summarize all the testimonies I read into like one experience, it would be a teenage boy who's, you know, been receiving pressure from his friends to lose his virginity. He's really horny and he's watched copious amounts of pornography and he's with his teenage girlfriend who just wants to like hang out and kiss him and maybe like cuddle a bit. And when he starts forcing her, she freaks out and, you know, maybe freezes or doesn't say no. And he takes that as consent because he doesn't understand what consent is. And he thinks that means a go ahead. That's a go ahead. And then what we end up with is a situation on teen on teen perpetrated sexual assault, which is actually child sexual assault when the perpetrator is also a child. So it's a really complex issue. It's also important to note there that the most prevalent demographic of rapists in Australia is a 15 to 19 year old male. So we can infer from that the most likely victims of this sort of, um, this sort of thing. Wow. That was a long answer. Right. To the, <laughs> to the no, question. no, no. I think, but look, it's, I think it's frightening and it's you, one needs to understand the problem in order to be able to work out a pathway forward, right? So, you know, I think, you know, I, I'm a parent of teenage kids and it's, and I think for other parents who are listening to this show, to under, to sort of understand this context and understand the subtle, like the, like the, the apparent subtleties, but not mm. subtleties around these questions of consent is, is just very important. Like we need to not turn away. We need to be looking at this issue and talking about this issue if we're going to be able to change this issue. So well, I think it's really great that you excited it. about for this book. I think that young people would really benefit from reading it. But when I wrote it in my mind, I was like, there's definitely a secondary audience here of parents who will just really want to be able to like unpick all of this and understand what's going on with like technology and you know, what's nor- what are the norms these days? What's the most common situations? How can we make sure that we're you know, raising our kids to be able to engage in healthy, respectful relationships in the safest possible way. Yeah, I found it incredibly helpful. Listeners who are old <laughs> like me. <laughs> so, so let's let's step into this. Like, okay, so how do we change it, right? So, one of the questions you look at in the book, and that that you one as a change maker would pose is like, what are the pillars holding up rape culture, right? So we've identified that we've got a problem, that there's that this is happening all over the place, including in schools amongst our beautiful children, what what systems of thinking and practice and action, not thinking particularly first or foremost about the law, but like about mm-hmm. society in general, what's holding this up? What's allowing this to continue? I mean, we have a few things. I think our two biggest pillars in the rape culture, the first one is our attitudes towards and expectations of gender. Um, so, you know, those problematic gendered norms about, you know, pretty much everything. But if we're talking about sexual situations, you know, men always want sex, women should repel it. It's, you know, um, purity mm. culture is much more prevalent, you know, on for the experience of women. And then also attitudes and expectations of sexuality depending on that gender. So, again, um, this idea that sex is especially in teen years it really feels as though the narrative is said 
even from things like sitcoms and rom-coms and like all these things you kind of like watch on TV, the narrative is very much that like sex is something that a man hoodwinks a woman into and she kind of like mm. loses out if she like gives in and like caves into this like romantic narrative. And I know women are so often portrayed as people who don't like sex. It's yeah. such a tr- like, you know what I mean? Like really, like I think that is an impression that is given in, in, in sort of in, you know, popular discussion all the time. Oh my God, massively. And it and yeah. And it completely disregards female sexuality, which again comes into play because if we're going back to that situation of that teenage boy and teenage girl and, you know, him feeling pressure from his friends to lose his virginity or whatever, if he understood that female pleasure was paramount to sex, he would be able to infer that she was not enjoying the situation and that meant that that situation couldn't go ahead. And that also means the same for her. I think it is extremely dangerous that we do not talk about the pleasures of sex to our kids, especially our girls, because it means that it makes it harder to distinguish between consensual and non-consensual sexual situations for them, which is why it can take years to have these sort of delayed realizations until these things are spoke explicitly. But yeah, I mean, we've got so many other pillars. We've got purity culture, we've got victim blaming, we've got, I mean, yeah, again, all these narratives that come from the media. Like I, one of the sections of the book that I kind of didn't expect to put in when I started planning it, but I ended up actually really loving when I was writing it is the section about like marriage and how there's like consistently this narrative in pop culture that marriage is something that women, you know, it's, it's the peak of a woman's existence to get married to a man. And we, we fought over it and we try everything. And the whole time the man's trying to avoid it. And he's like, Oh, I don't want to be tied down. I don't want a ball and chain, like whatever. But actually all statistics point to the fact that marriage is detrimental for women. (laughs) 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 Marriage is detrimental to women and beneficial for men. Um, and it's actually very dangerous for women to like the most likely person, um, in the world to kill a woman is her partner or her ex-partner. And the more educated a woman is, the less likely she is to marry a man, which I think is quite funny. Um, it's, it's, it's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> but also the other, the other st- I mean, I think that that is quite funny. I, 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 if only my husband was listening now, he could realise <laughs> that he should, be, he should be grateful that he is married to me rather than the other way around. Um, <laughs> but but the, the other thing that I love um, is, I mean, just to reinforce the piece about like it, the problem is not rapists as individuals, mm. it's a rape culture as the system. As I, I saw that as also one of the pillars, right? The the person, mm. like instead of personalising the problem, instead of making it private and individual, seeing the problem as public, like the more we can see rape culture rather than just a whole bunch of randomly surprising individual rapists, I think that we can start to see a pathway to the solution too. You make that point really clearly in the book. Yeah, I like the way you articulated that. I haven't, I haven't really thought of that in that way. I guess that was the point I was making without realizing it. But um, yeah, it, we need a shared level of accountability. We can't think that there's just individual people in our community doing these things. We have to understand that even if you've never sexually assaulted someone yourself, you're a part of this spectrum. And I'm also not just speaking to men here. I'm speaking to like women uphold rape culture massively. Like the narratives we give, like you know, people around us, the I mean, when I was at school, it was completely commonplace to call people sluts for sexual acts that in hindsight were like often acts of sexual assault as well, which kind of adds like a double, double edged sword to the whole thing. And it's just like, I think we need to, you know, something that I gained a lot of inspiration from in like the work I do is, so in 2020 with the Black Lives Matter movement, what I found incredible about that is the way that 
it was so clearly communicated to the masses that it's not just good enough to say, I'm not racist. Like, in fact, we don't actually believe you if you say you're not racist. It's much more proactive to say, of course I'm racist. I grew up in a racist world. How could I not be racist? I'm not some anomaly. I was born unracist, but I was turned inherently prejudiced towards Mm. certain groups. Maybe I don't act on it, but of course that's within all of us. How can I be anti-racist now? How can I start counteracting that narrative? And I think that's what we need with rape culture. It's like there's no point pretending that you don't contribute to, you know, this patriarchy, this expression of gendered power hierarchies, like all these sort of things. It's much more productive to say, okay, well, how do I do that? If, you know, if I've been grown up in it, if I've been socialized from day one in this world, how can I actively make sure that I'm not putting any problematic prejudices onto anyone else? Yep. Which brings me to my sort of big, substan- like, like, I guess, last-ish substantive question, which is, okay, cool, so how do we change rape culture, right? Like, how do we dismantle it? Like, you know, it is pervasive and everywhere, and it is something that we are all part of, right? We've been encultured in the, the sort of values and approach that it brings. You know, if, if rape culture is a wall, where do we push for the cracks? Like, where, mm-hmm. where do we seek the change? You've already done one, right? Consent education in schools, incredibly powerful and potent. Where else do we move, Chanel? <laughs> what else should we do <laughs> if we want to push and to seek to, you know, practically, like you've described, pragmatically, where else can we push to change this? Okay, I'm going to have two answers to this question. The first one, I'm also just, I guess, going to say where I see myself pushing against the wall, but understanding that I'm kind of in like a bit of a different position where, again, I have the power of these tens of thousands of people giving me um, giving me a voice. Where I keep trying to push is like leverage points in legislation is kind of how I think about them, like little changes that are often like cheap for the government to make or like practical policy changes that can create long-term, substantial, sustainable effects. So the Australian curriculum was one of them. It, you know, that's a, that's, you know, in a relatively speaking term, that's a cheap change for the government and a very effective long-term solution for this sort of culture. Um, Other ones that um, I've been working on is, I've been working on a campaign to nationally criminalise the act of stealthing in Australia. So that is non-consensually removing a condom during sex, which is an act of rape. And you can understand again how a young boy could so easily, or you know, not even a young boy, how a man could so easily do that act and not think that they're committing a you know, severe crime in that moment. And you know, other things include like teacher training policies and like all of this sort of thing. So I guess I'm working on like what like little changes can we make that like make sense and someone who can, you know, I have the privilege of being able to speak to like ministers and their advisors and departments to like figure out these nuances and advocate for them. But I guess just what can everyone do yeah. is... Or anyone, yeah. Anyone, Men and women, and everyone, right? Men and women, everyone. Yeah. So the quote at the very beginning of the book says, be ruthless with systems and kind with people. So I think what everyone, anyone can do is take the time to reflect on, you know, your own thoughts, your own biases, your own upbringing, how these gender norms and expectations were impeded on you, what conversations about rape culture came through, you know, maybe how pornography has altered your expectations of sex, 
all these sort of things and then basically try to actively do better. So again, not just be like, oh, I'm not racist, but be anti-racist, not just be like, oh, I'm not part of a rape culture, but understanding that if you're being complacent in this rape culture, that means you're being complicit in it because the reality of sexual violence for women in Australia and around the world is just like gut-wrenching. So if, <laughs> if you don't want that to be the case, you need to actively change something about it. But it just, it's not as if it's a massive effort. It's, you know, if someone makes a misogynistic joke, just being like, mate, don't do that. If, you know, someone, you know, think about the language you're using, like a classic one is schoolgirls constantly get told. I'd like, I'm yet to go to a school and a schoolgirl not tell me that this happens to their whole grade. And I'm sure anyone, <laughs> any woman here has heard this before as well. Your school, your skirt is too short. It's distracting for the male teachers. Like even that ah, sentence, geez. what that means and what that does for this expectation for like it to be a young girl's responsibility to not attract the attention of a grown yeah. man who's meant to be, you know, one of someone who's caring for them. Instead saying your skirt's too short, it's against school policy. It makes all the difference. And we don't even notice. We just, we've heard that. I've heard that a hundred times. I've never even thought anything of it at the time, but what that did to to my, you know, subconscious 12-year-old self when navigating the world. And then, you know, next thing you get catcalled by a grown man on the side of the road and you're thinking, oh, I guess my skirt's too short. Instead of it's thinking, my fault. Yeah, it's, it's my, my fault. fault. It's my fault. I shouldn't wear this. I shouldn't, you know, wear a bikini to the beach, like whatever it is. Um, so, you know, and, and another one as well that like you always see kind of like, again, whether it's in movies or like just like around like people's houses and stuff, like, People like, oh, honey, I wish I still got catcalled. Like, what a compliment. Like, uh, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but, I mean, it, it happens. And it's- it happens. People uh, unconsciously, subconsciously, they say this, they think it's funny. Yeah, yeah. and we've been, okay. I mean, as women, we've been socialised to take abuse as a compliment because, I mean, <laughs> if we actually took as much offence to it as it was warranted, mm. it would be pretty hard to function. So, yeah, I guess reflecting on bias is trying to do better. The actual, the last pay, last chapter of the book is called Dear Boys and Men, and it's a bit of a, like, call to action of, like, what can be done by boys and men to, to kind of make change in this space, but it is applicable to everyone. So even if you, if you don't think you can convince a boy or man in your life to read, like, a full-on um, full 350-page book, that last chapter is a quick read, um, and I think it is, um, is really important. But yeah, I think the biggest thing we can all do is reflect and commit to being willing to do better. And if you want to go one step further, tell the people around you, tell your family, tell your friends, you know, tell your work colleagues, you are actively trying to dismantle, you know, this rape culture, this patriarchy. And if you see me do anything about this, give them permission to call you up on it because that really starts Mm. creating a culture where no one feels as though, the, the hardest thing about calling someone up or saying like, mate, don't say that is because of scared of offending them, scared of social stigma, like all these sort of things. So giving people permission to call you up on those sort of behaviours as kind of like a group means that you can like seriously see change in culture instantly. And then, yeah, just have a conversation about it. Like conversations are one of the biggest ways of cultural change and that's what underpinned this whole petition. I love it. So think global about the culture of rape and act local amongst those who you know. Right, and then and then recognise that this is not going to be one personally. Although personal conversations are really powerful, so being in conversation with with groups of people with whom you can think about it and act together is powerful too. Chanel, this has been a very powerful conversation. Listeners, one 
go read the book. It's really awesome. Um, and I am delighted. I feel like you are one of many, many brilliant feminists of your generation. And it's been very, very inspiring to speak with you and read your book. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Amanda. Such a privilege. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. This is Series 7, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. Chanel's book, Consent Laid Bare, published by Pan Macmillan, is available in all good bookshops and online. You can see details about where to buy it and follow her campaign in the show notes. Changemakers' audio producer is Jules Wookerer, and we are broadcast on Acast as part of the Iconoclast Network. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook, Instagram and threads at Changemakers Podcast. We are kind of still on Twitter at Changemakers99 and I'm there too, kind of, at Amanda Tats. And you can also check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at the content from our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.